This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. Welcome to Brand and New. I am Audrey Dove. On September 18, 2020, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at age 87 after serving as an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court for over 27 years. The career and legacy of the notorious RBG, the US Supreme Court's second female justice, has been told repeatedly in media, books, and films with an echo all over the world. From being a pioneer of the women's rights movement in the 1970s to spending her later years fighting for the rights of the less privileged, her lifetime of service will hopefully and deservedly be celebrated for a very long time. But there is a slightly less noticed aspect of Justice Ginsburg, namely her impact on the intellectual property world. In today's episode, we will shed light on the many ways Justice Ginsburg shaped the US intellectual property law through her opinions, whether concurring or dissenting while sitting at the US Supreme Court. By doing so, we will try to understand her views on copyright, trademark, and patent law. We will also discuss the footprint she left on the IP world of today and tomorrow. The first of our three distinguished guests today is Professor Jane Ginsburg, who is Professor of Literary and Artistic Property Law at the Columbia Law School. She also directs the Kernokan Center for Law, Media and the Arts at the Columbia Law School. Jane, who is Justice Ginsburg's daughter, is a renowned authority on IP law and a staunch defender of authors' rights. She has been a visiting professor at law schools and universities all over the world and teaches and writes about copyright law, international copyright law, legal methods, and trademark law. Member of the American Philosophical Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, she is also a corresponding fellow of the British Academy. Our second guest today, Professor Mary Hartnett, has been at Georgetown Law since 1998, first as Executive Director of the Women's Law and Public Policy Fellowship Program, and now as an adjunct professor of law. She has been actively involved in women's rights issues throughout her career. In 2016, Mary co-authored with Justice Ginsburg and Professor Wendy Williams the best-selling book, My Own Words. She is also currently writing with co-author Professor Williams an authorized biography of Justice Ginsburg. Our third guest today is Judge Margaret McEwen of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, where she has authored a number of essential IP decisions. Before being confirmed as a judge in 1998 and embracing a career dedicated to public service, Margaret was a partner at Perkins Coe. She is chair of the ABA Commission on the 19th Amendment and is member of several boards. She has lectured throughout the world on intellectual property, antitrust, constitutional law, ethics, international law, human rights law, and litigation. I am pleased to present today the first of the two episodes dedicated to Justice Ginsburg's legacy in the IP world with these three eminent guests. So, um, Justice Ginsburg uh, was involved uh, in intellectual property disputes f 
almost from the moment she was appointed to the United States Supreme Court by President Bill Clinton in 1993, often taking the pen for major ruling on the subject and causing significant shifts, in particular in the field of copyright. She had a determining impact on landmark decisions of the Supreme Court on IP law. Margaret, if there was just one decision to remember, which one would represent for you her values and engagement the best? For that, I would pick the Eldred decision, Eldred v. Ashcroft, which related to upholding the extension of the Copyright Act. And there was a companion case called Golan. And I would say that for a couple of reasons. One, she looked to the history of copyright. And that plus a statutory interpretation was her interpretation. She also brought the United States law, noting it was in harmony with the EU law on this particular point. And I think she made another important point saying that patents are not the same as copyright. So finally, she's quoted before and in other cases saying that, according to Justice Holmes, a page of history is worth a pound of logic. I think she founded this case on history, and then she came to a logical conclusion. And I would just uh, chip in with respect to the companion case or the bookend Golan versus Holder, that that case, which uh, also involved the extension of, of copyright to works whose U.S. protection had expired uh, in violation of a treaty that we subsequently joined and therefore had to restore the copyright protection, that that opinion is uh, infused with an internationalist perspective. Uh, and all too often, IP judging uh, and scholarship tends to be extraordinarily insular. But uh, my mother was a, a comparative law scholar. She got her start writing about Swedish civil procedure. So she was very sensitive to comparative and uh, international perspectives, and she brought that to bear in intellectual property as well. She is often portrayed as pro-authors when it comes to copyright law with a strong commitment to preserving and strengthening private property rights. Uh, Jane, could you please elaborate on this and also on the role of copyright law in protecting authorship and creators? Well, she was a, a great lover of the arts, and I think a, a lot of people who are drawn to copyright uh, come at it from a, a perspective of, of appreciating music, art, and literature. And she certainly emphasized the uh, constitutional role of copyright uh, in stimulating and rewarding creativity. And she, in a number of instances, uh, looked at the consequences uh, of a decision for the uh, fostering of works of authorship. Also, did she hold up similar arguments and rationales for trademark and patent holders to the extent she got the opportunity to lay them out? I would, say, I would just say uh, one of her last decisions was a patent case, uh, Thrive versus Click-to-Call Technologies. And it's important there. This involved, of course, the administrative or inter partes review on patent challenges. And the, and the question was really one of procedure is whether certain issues like timeliness could be raised on appeal. And she confirmed it could not. Again, looking to the text of the statute, 
but what was important there, I think, is that in looking to the text, she also looked at the congressional purpose of the statute. And there she noticed that uh, Congress was concerned about bad patents and about diminishing competition. So in some ways, she was highlighting there the phenomenon that some have criticized as over-patenting or over-protecting. So that is, I think, a very interesting perspective she had in the patent arena. And uh, in the trademark area, another of the last op- opinions is in a, a case called Booking.com, uh, which raised the question whether a, an, a supposed trademark consisting of a generic term followed by .com could be registered. And uh, I think this case illustrates her pragmatic approach to things, because as a matter of theory, one might say that uh, just as one cannot register a generic term, uh, because among other things, that would be rather anti-competitive, adding a .com to a generic word shouldn't make the word any more registrable and risks putting competitors at the same kind of disadvantage. Uh, and that's all very coherent as a matter of theory. But as a practical matter, the trademark office had been registering lots of .com, generic .com marks. So it had taken a consistent position from the start. And by the time the Supreme Court got this case, it was a little late to pull the rug out from all those prior registrations. So the case may have been a a triumph of practice over theory, even if the practice in the abstract was contestable. Mary, Justice Ginsburg was also an author herself, co-authoring with you her autobiography, My Own Words. What was it like to negotiate a book contract alongside Justice Ginsburg with your publisher? So um, first, My Own Words is a collection of Justice Ginsburg's writings that span over 70 years. The first piece in the book was written when she was 13 years old for her eighth grade student newspaper. So when we say that she was also an author herself, that's quite an understatement. She was a a tremendously prolific author. While My Own Words is not an autobiography as such, it does contain biographical excerpts written by my co-author Wendy Williams and me for our forthcoming biography of Justice Ginsburg. But My Own Words is really Justice Ginsburg's book. And yes, Audrey, negotiating the contract with our publisher was... uh, quite interesting. So on the one hand, you had a renowned Supreme Court justice and her secret weapon, her daughter, Jane Ginsburg, the (laughs) foremost copyright. (laughs) And then on the other side, you have a publisher not accustomed to negotiating the fine print of their standard form contract. And in the middle, you had me and our agent's attorney communicating back and forth. And I would say, let's just say that uh, Justice Ginsburg and Jane Ginsburg read and understood every single (laughs) word of that contract, and they made sure that it was fair. And this, I would say, is also another example of how Justice Ginsburg, for her, both as a lawyer advocate and later as a judge and justice, the law was never just about arcane legal concepts. For her, it was always about real people and treating them fairly. That's a great anecdote. I'm sure, Mary, we didn't need to make another reading of the contract after that, right? 
I'd say it's a solid contract, Jane. <laughs> Jane, do you agree? I think you should go and use it as a, a template for, for every author. Uh, who might not have quite the same bargaining power, but why not try? <laughs> INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. Interestingly, uh, most decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court on IP law seem to challenge the usual partisan divide between conservative and liberal <clears throat> justices. Jane, Margaret, what's your perspective on this? What does it say about Justice Ginsburg's positions and about IP law from a political perspective? The use of political in IP, I think, is in the eye of the beholder. And I'm talking about a small p political and part of that is because the world of IP, particularly with the digital world and changes with the Internet, is, is so much more nuanced now. There's not simply a divide between authors and others. But what I find interesting with Justice Ginsburg is that her compatriot on a number of other cases, such as in civil rights and various constitutional challenges, has been Justice Breyer. But there are several examples of where they split on IP. We talked about the Eldred case, and Justice Breyer was in the dissent on that case. He thought Congress had gone too far in impinging on the public domain. Another good example was in the MGM v. Grokster case, which now seems like ancient history, uh, involving peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. The majority there, written neither by Justice Breyer nor Justice Ginsburg, was very narrow basically saying that if you distribute a device that promotes the use of infringement, copyright infringement, then the device generator can be liable for third-party infringement. Well, Justice Ginsburg went back and basically said, well, in this case, there's insufficient evidence of uses which were non-infringing. And Breyer went the opposite way, actually. So uh, it was a very clear split there. But I, I think another split worth mentioning is the one that Jane just talked about in the case of Booking.com. That case is also somewhat of historic interest because due to the pandemic, it was the first case argued before the Supreme Court by telephone. The Supreme Court of the United States does not permit video arguments, and this was the first time that telephone arguments had taken place. And as Jane explained, that generic.com isn't necessarily generic for a term. And Justice Ginsburg said that because booking.com is not generic to consumers, it's not generic. All of her colleagues except Justice Breyer agreed. And he kind of threw out the sky is falling proposition that if you would stifle competition and pretty soon we would be giving protection to things like you know, pizza.com, drink.com, and everything else, these easy-to-remember domain names. So he was concerned that his colleagues had basically granted a monopoly over all of these generic names. And I'll just add one other point. I think the friendship between Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg is very well known. Uh, Justice Scalia self-described as in the conservative camp, but they had a, a great friendship that in part was spawned by their love of opera. 
And I thought it was a, a tribute to his colleague when Scalia said, and particularly in these intellectual property cases, that my judgment is often guided considerably by Ruth. As Margaret said, Justice Ginsburg's friendship with Justice Scalia is really a, it's a terrific example of friendships that span uh, ideological differences. And the ideological differences between Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia were vast, but they were fast friends. In my own words, Justice Ginsburg has an entire chapter that includes her writings about their friendship and about Justice Scalia and gives some great examples. Um, I interviewed Justice Scalia for the upcoming biography once in his chambers, and it was quite the experience. First, their chambers could not be more different, kind of polar opposites. Justice Ginsburg's chamber was light, airy. She had family photos and artwork throughout. Justice Scalia's chambers, I can only describe as dark, leathery, and a large <laughs> mounted stuffed dead animal that he no doubt shot looking down from the wall as we <laughs> interview him. But then he started talking about, as he said, his good friend Ruth, his dear friend Ruth, and he just lightened up his entire composure. And he told me one story about how they had traveled to India together and they were at the Taj Mahal. And he was telling this story to say that a lot of people thought of Justice Ginsburg as quite serious, but that she had an entirely different side and she was a very caring and loving person. He was watching Ruth as the tour guide at the Taj Mahal told the love story behind the building of the Taj Mahal, and he noticed tears come to her eyes. But interestingly, while I was interviewing Justice Scalia and he told the story, he seemed to tear up too. Um, and I think this is also a good example of Justice Ginsburg. Not only did she have special friendships that cross divides, but it wasn't only friendship. She cared so deeply about the integrity of the Supreme Court as an institution. So I think she talked about this often and she lived it daily, how they tried very hard, even when there were very difficult ideological differences, to respect each other and respect the institution. Mary, it's no secret that Justice Ginsburg was very proud of Jane's achievement being herself an acclaimed and recognized Ivy League legal scholar specializing in intellectual property law. How do you think Justice Ginsburg's work in the field of IP influenced or echoed her work and career? Well, so first, I think it's important to note that without doubt, it's Jane Ginsburg who was the trailblazer in the field of copyright law. And uh, Justice Ginsburg would be the first person to say that if you frame this question to her. Jane, remember, graduated from Harvard Law School before her mother even became a judge on the D.C. Circuit. And Jane was already a tenured professor recognized as a preeminent scholar in the field before her mother was nominated to the Supreme Court. But you also mentioned how proud Justice Ginsburg was of Jane's achievements in the field and otherwise. And I cannot tell you the number of times when we interviewed the justice each year for three days in August, how much she talked about Jane. And she would have copies of Jane's latest <clears throat> publications, which 
there were many. And um, she was thrilled when they both were inducted together, I think it was in 2015, into the CHIPS Intellectual Property Hall of Fame. And she talked about that. And the other thing is, um, Jane has already mentioned Justice Ginsburg's great interest in uh, other countries and in comparative law. And the justice traveled widely throughout her um, career. But Jane and the justice did many of these professional trips together, and the, the justice was thrilled about that. I think Jane was the most recent to Sweden about In a year and a half ago, 2019. 2019. Yes. And during these trips, so the justice would have her talks about the Supreme Court, about gender equality, and Jane would be completely independent professionally off doing her intellectual property talks. And then they would gather together very late at night back in the hotel and compare notes. But it was um, one of the many beautiful things about their relationship. But it's something that the justice and I'm sure Jane uh, treasured greatly. And then on the topic of the mix up between who was the copyright expert and who wasn't, I guess... <laughs> There's one funny story, Jane, that you have, if you wanted to share, about the 1993 Copyright Convention. Sure. The uh, annual meeting of the Copyright Society of the USA takes place uh, in June, usually, of every year. And the society was, was gathered then. I happened not to be there. And the news came that uh, Clinton had nominated, quote, Ginsburg and the, some of the folks at the Copyright Society looked at each other and said, but isn't she much too young? <laughs> I love that story. Uh, thank you. This was the first of the two episodes dedicated to Justice Ginsburg's legacy in the intellectual property world with Professor Jane Ginsburg, Professor Mary Hartnett, and Judge Margaret McEwen. Stay tuned for the second part of this series. Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover Brand and New. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.